Fathers, we come today and we uh, focus in on the tabernacle, Lord, and uh, as we're told in Hebrews, it's a shadow of, of a reality, Lord, that we don't see. And Lord, what we want to do today as we look at the shadow, we want to see the reality, Lord. We want to see the reality of what the temple and the tabernacle are all about, Lord, how they are about heaven and about uh, the throne room and about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Show us these things, Lord, as we look at these uh, articles in the tabernacle. And, and Lord, I just ask that you uh, open our eyes to, to, to see uh, what all of this means and how we can apply this to the way we approach you. Lord, we learn a lot of lessons in examining the tabernacle about our approach to you. Some of us, some of us approach you so flippantly, Lord, and, and so carelessly that, that uh, Lord, I don't know that we ever really dwell where you want us to be, and that's in the holiest of holies in your very presence. That's where you want us, Lord. Show us how to get there today in this very important lesson that we look at uh, in the book of Exodus. I just ask that you open our eyes and ears to your word today. I ask that you do it by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Last time we left off, the Lord had given Moses the law. He had given him the law, he had given him the Ten Commandments, and he had given him the, uh, the Mosaic Law. And uh, now, as we come to the end of chapter 23, where we left off, he's going to speak about the rewards of keeping that law. Now, we talked about this last week. As believers, we are not under law, are we? Uh, we're not required to keep the law for salvation or for grace. We receive that grace because the law has been written on our hearts. When we came to Jesus Christ and we were born again, not only was the law written on our hearts, the will to do the law was written on our hearts. So we don't need the law. We're not whoremongers and murderers and all the things that Paul lists in the first chapter of Timothy, the people who need the law. We don't need the law because the law is part of who we are. And let me tell you this, because it's part of our nature, just like it was for the Israelites, if they were to keep the law, the Lord would have rewarded them abundantly. And he awards, rewards us abundantly because we keep the law as part of our nature. Now, if you're not keeping the law, you don't keep the law to be saved. You don't keep the law to receive mercy. You don't keep the law to, to get forgiveness. You get all of that through Jesus Christ. But because you keep the law, the Lord rewards you for keeping the law. And the rewards that the Lord gives us are very similar to the rewards that he offered to Israel if they would keep the law. Now he's offering them, uh, he's offering them all of these blessings now if they will just follow his statutes and keep his commandments. So that's where I want to pick up today as we look in chapter 23 at the end of the chapter and look with me in verse number 20 and let's look at these rewards for, for keeping the law. He says, behold, I send an angel. Now, they're really there, that should be, the definite article should be there before angel. It really, it should say, behold, I send the angel. We know that 
from context. Notice that the word angel is capitalized. Why is it capitalized? Because this is the angel of the Lord that he's speaking of. This is none other than God Almighty himself. He says, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into to the place which I have prepared. And he says, Beware of him and obey his voice and do not provoke him. How do we provoke him? By not keeping his commandments. If you don't keep his commandments, you will provoke him. If you don't keep the commandments that I'm giving you, he, you will provoke him. For he will not pardon you. Now that's kind of scary right there. If you fail, if you provoke the Lord by not keeping the law, he will not pardon you. And we'll talk about that here in just a minute. He says, he will not pardon your transgressions. For my name, now watch this, my name is in him. And so who is this angel? We know who this angel is because the Lord's name is in him. What is the Lord's name? Jehovah. What's the name of Jesus mean? Or, or how do you translate the, name, the word Jesus? Jehovah is salvation. It's Jesus who has the name of Jehovah in him. He is the angel of the Lord. He is God in the flesh. Uh, Jesus appeared here as the pre-incarnate God in the flesh. And he has the name of Jehovah in him. Now, Look at what it says there again. It says, and if you provoke him, if you violate his law, he will not pardon your sin. Is that so? Yes, that's so. In Ezekiel chapter 18, Ezekiel says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. You sin, you're going to die. The wages of sin is death. Now here's where we go wrong, and we're dealing in semantics here a little bit when we talk about a pardon. A lot of people think of a pardon this way. A lot of people who call themselves Christians think they came to Christ this way. They came to Christ because they came to Christ, he just, you know, winked at all their sin. And from now on, he just winks at all their sin. No, he does not, if you provoke him, he does not pardon your sin. He doesn't just wink at your sin. It doesn't just go away. Your sin even the sins you commit today, your sins have to be punished. They're all punished. They're not pardoned. Every sin is punished, and eventually it leads to death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Now let me give you the good news. The punishment for your sin was meted out on Jesus Christ on the cross. Your sin wasn't just, just washed away. I mean, it was washed away at the cross. But I mean, you're, God didn't just say, okay, I'm going to forget your sin. But actually it is forgetting, forgotten by God. But it isn't just forgotten until you receive the payment for your sin. And that is the punishment of your sin that was laid on Jesus Christ at the cross. See, God doesn't just wink at your sin. He punishes your sin, but he doesn't punish you. He punishes Jesus Christ. It's him who suffered for your sin. Now that's really, really good news. They didn't have that here. Now, they're going to get a sacrificial system that's going to let them have their sins covered later on. But, but he's saying to them at this point, hey, I, there's no pardon for your sin. The, the soul that sinneth it will die, and so you better keep my law. You have to keep my law, or you're going to, fall, you're going to provoke the Son of God, and, and uh, you're not going to be pardoned. We, because our punishment for our sin was 
given to Jesus Christ, then our sins now are cast away from us as far as the east is from the west. Not because God just says, oh, just forget their sins. No, the price for your sins was paid for on the cross. We forget that sometimes. I mean, as believers, we forget that. We come to the Lord and we pray to the Lord and we've forgotten the fact that the only reason we can even come in God's presence is the fact that Jesus paid for our sins. God doesn't take our sin lightly. I mean, we keep on sinning. I don't think there's anybody in here who would say that they're, they're living a perfect life. But that sin still has to be punished. It, it's punished back when Christ died for our sins. When he died for those sins way back in the first century, he, he was dying for the sins you and I committed here in the 21st century, the sins we're going to commit in the, in the rest of our lives. He died for all those sins. And, and so in our, from, in our, from a positional standpoint, they've been cast as far as the east is from the west, and our sinless and lawless deeds, God remembers no more because they've been paid for, not because he just chooses to forget them. And, and, and guys, I tell you what, ladies, guys, we are really flippant in the way we approach the Lord if we approach him without remembering what Christ has done for us. And that's what this whole thing we're going to see here in a minute when we look at this tabernacle, that's what it's all about. It's about coming into the presence of God and, and we've provoked the holy God and the only way that we can come into his presence is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. All right, now, so, so we're rewarded. We're rewarded because we become, when we get saved, we become law keepers. Listen to what he says in, in uh, verse 20. I mean, verse 1 of chapter 20. He says, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way. In other words, he's going to keep you in the way. Wherever you go, the Lord is with you. He never leaves you or forsake you, forsakes you. We're told in Psalm chapter 34 that the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ himself, encampeth around those who believe in him. That means that he's with us the whole step of the way. And the last part of verse number 1 of chapter 20 should sound really familiar to you. He says, he will keep you in the way, just like he kept the Israelites in their wilderness journey. He will keep you in the way to bring you to the place which I have prepared. Does that sound familiar? It should. You remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14? He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That's our great reward. That where I am, there you may be also. Just like he told them, I will bring you into a place which I have prepared. If you're a born-again believer and your sins have been paid for by Jesus Christ, God has a place for you. And... He doesn't make that promise to people who are under law. He doesn't make that promise to lawbreakers. He makes that promise to, to us, to, to those of us who have been washed in his blood and live righteously for him. If you're a born-again believer, you live righteously for the Lord. If you're not living righteously for the Lord, you're not doing what you really want to do. Because when you get born again, you want to live righteously for the Lord. And that's, that's what most of us do most of the time because we love the Lord. 
And, and uh, go down to verse number 22, and we get some more promises here. Listen to what he said for those who are law keepers. He says, but if you indeed obey his voice, the voice of the angel of the Lord, and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies. Man, what a comforting word for the time in which we live. Don't you need the Lord on your side right now? Don't you want him to be an enemy to your enemies when we live in a world full of enemies, a world that's at enmity against Jesus Christ? And if the world is at enmity against Jesus Christ, let me tell you what, it's an enmity against you if you're a born-again believer. And you better get ready. You better, you better buckle up because you're about to see some persecution in this world coming at the church. And, but we don't have to worry about that because God is on our side. And if God be for us, who can be against us? I mean, if, if somebody becomes our enemy because we're in Christ, guess what? They've made God their enemy, and I wouldn't want to be in their shoes. That's why we pray for those that persecute us, because, because hey, they're the ones that are in trouble, not us. All right, then jump down to verse number 25, and he says, So you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread, and he will bless your water. He's going to bless you materially. He's going to bless them in the wilderness. They were going to have bread and they were going to have water. But he blesses us too. And he says, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. Now, that was a direct promise to the Israelites uh, during their wilderness journey. Hey, they didn't have any doctors. They didn't have any lawyers. They didn't have any government other than the government of God. But God took care of them. And God takes care of us. That, that's not a direct promise to us, but hey, the, the promise is there elsewhere in the Bible. In, in Psalm 103, the Lord says, I will heal you of all your diseases. Now, some of us, you know, that have colds and stuff might wonder about that at times. If you've got COVID, I, I guarantee you'll certainly wonder about that. But, but uh, eventually, eventually, God is going to heal all your diseases. I don't care what disease you get, God is going to heal it. Well, what if I die? Well, man, you really got healed then. Because you, you, you're moving from that old corruptible body into an incorruptible body, and you're going to live with him forever. So, so look forward to that. Verse number 27, he says, I will send my fear before you. In other words, you have nothing to be afraid of if you're a child of God. Hey, people need to fear you. I hear so many people, especially within the church now, right now, doomsayers, talking about how the sky's about to fall, the world's about to end, we better, we, we, we better be afraid and very afraid of what's coming our way. Hey, we need to be ready for what's coming our way because there's some stuff that's coming our way we're not going to like. But we don't need to fear. Let me tell you what, again, as I said earlier, the, the, the enemies of God are the ones who need to be afraid, not us. Those people you're fearing are the ones who really need to be afraid, not you. There's nothing, not a hair on your head is going to get harmed unless God allows it to get harmed. God's going to take care of his own, and he knows how to take care of his own and deliver them out of trials and, and deliver the, the uh, unjust uh, to punishment, to everlasting punishment. So you don't have anything to fear. I watched John MacArthur over there in California. He's an 81-year-old man. I mean, he's not afraid to come to church. He's not afraid to preach church. He's not afraid to... To, for his people to be at church. Because, hey, i got to tell you, church is the best place you can be. God's not going to let anything happen to you when you're at church. You go home and hide. 
and, and, and hide in a closet somewhere and be afraid. That's, that's not worthy of a child of God. I mean, you, you need to step up and get out and, and, and especially doing the things of God and ministering for, for the Lord. The Lord's not going to let any harm come to you. I mean, I look at John MacArthur, he's 81 years old. And that big bad wolf over there in California huffs and puffs and tries to blow his house down, and all he does is build it up. And it gets larger and larger and larger. He doesn't know what's happening. We, we have nothing to fear if you're a child of God. I'm 71 years old, and I come to this church, and my heart pumps at about a rate of about 20%, and I'm not afraid to come up here. You know why I'm not afraid to come up here? Because I'm in the hands of the Lord, and, and I'm... Perfect love, the Lord loves me, and perfect love casts out fear. So you, don't, so you don't cower somewhere and be afraid. That's not worthy of a child of God. Then he goes on, and he says, he, he, he says in, in, uh, well, that's the last one. I mean, I could go through some of these others, but we don't have time for that today. But uh, now as we come to chapter 24, Moses is going to give the law to his people. He's going to give the law to the people that God has given him. And what's their response going to be? I mean, if you read the Mosaic law, you read the Ten Commandments, I tell you what, and if you're told that if you provoke the angel of the Lord, he's not going to pardon you, in other words, you're in for trouble, uh, when, when you look at the law and you read the Ten Commandments and you read the Mosaic law, what should the response be? I tell you what the response should be. Man, I can't do that. There's no way I could do that. I mean, give me some other course of action, some other way to, 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 to have a relationship with the Lord. But, man, keeping that law, I'm not going to be able to do that. But listen to their response. Listen to their response. Verse number three. It says, So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all of the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. Now, they say that on several occasions. All which he says, we will do. In other words, bring it on. Bring it on. I mean, I mean we can do it. We will do it. Don't worry about us. Is that right? They, man, they, they, they didn't keep that law for one minute. They're going to be, just shortly, we're going to see them building, not today, but... Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to see them building a golden calf, worshiping another god. What's the first commandment? You should have no other gods before me. So they're going to break it right away. You know, there are a lot of people in Christendom today. A, a, a lot. I, say, I, I don't want to say, I mean, not the majority by any means. But they adhere to something I call the perfectionist gospel. And what that gospel is, is that once, it, it says this, once you're born again, once you're saved, you can and you will live a perfect, sinless life. In other words, all that the Lord has said, we will do. They are, they've already broke the commandment about lying. Because there is no way in this corruptible flesh you don't lose the corruptible flesh when you get saved. There's no way in your corruptible flesh, no way that you're going to be able to keep this law and live a sinless, perfect life. 
So don't even think about that. I mean, we, that's what we want to do. Could we do that? Do we have the power to do that? Yes, we do. You have the power of the Holy Spirit in you to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And, and we certainly shouldn't be living in sin. We don't sin that grace may abound. But there are going to be times when we are going to sin. That's why John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, he says that if we, we means those of us who are saved, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If, if, if People who tell me that they're living a perfect Christian life, I've got to tell you, they are really deceiving themselves bad. And most of the time what they've done, they, lo they have lowered the standard of the law. On the surface, you can keep these commandments. You actually could, you can keep them. But what about your heart? And what about your mind? Because that's what, that's what really matters to God. It's what comes from the inside that matters to him, he said. What, what's going on inside? And, 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 and uh, we know what's inside of us. We know how wicked our minds are and how the, the human heart is desperately wicked. If you don't know that and you think you're perfect, see me after church and I'll explain to you how you're not. But we won't, we'll leave it there for right now. All right, now, he's given them the law and they said they're going to do it. And so what Moses does at that point, he builds an altar, which is a good thing to build. And I'll tell you what they should have said when he built the altar. They should have said everything that the Lord has said we will do. They should have said put more blood on the altar because that's what we need. But Moses puts the blood on the altar and it seals what we have right here at the beginning of chapter 20, at the end of chapter 24, we have the sealing of the old covenant. That's the sealing of the old covenant. And uh, now that the covenant is sealed with the blood on the altar. Now what's the blood on the altar? We're going to see that here in a few minutes. The blood on the altar is what opens up access to God. Now if you remember when they had come to that mountain, when they had come to Mount Sinai, what did the Lord tell them? You don't so much as touch the base of that mountain or you will surely die. But now Moses has built an altar and he's offered blood and God is actually going to let some of the elders of Israel some of the priests of Israel come into his very presence on Mount Sinai. So look with me in, uh, beginning in verse number 9 of chapter 24. It says, Then Moses went up, uh, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. They're not going to be around very much longer, Nadab and Abihu. We'll at least leave that story for later. And several of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. Now later on when we get to Nadab and Abihu, and they're offering up this false fire, you can understand why it made the Lord so angry. Because they actually had a vision of the Lord. i got to tell you, you get any kind of vision of the Lord, it is going to change your life. I mean, it might be through a word, it might be through an actual vision that you see with your eyes, but any kind of you know, vision in your heart, any kind of vision of the Lord is going to change your life, and it's going to change it dramatically. What's it going to change? It's going to change it for the better. It's going to, to lead you into the worship of the Lord, and that's what should have happened to Nadab and Abihu. But Moses went up with Nadab and Abihu and Aaron and, and, 70, and the 70 elders of Israel, and they saw God, and they saw the God of Israel. Can you imagine that? And, I mean, the, they're up on that mountain, and no doubt a dimension is open to them, and they see God on his throne. And we can see that because 
under his feet, and there was under his feet, verse number 10, were paved work of sapphire and stone, and it was, it was like the very heavens in its clarity. Now, now, where do we see that? We see that when we see Jesus on his throne in heaven in the book of Revelation. So they actually get a vision of heaven. I've said this before. Heaven is not way out there beyond outer space. Heaven is right here. I tell you what, if, you were, if God was to do it for us right now and rend open that dimension where we could look in, he's right here. He is right here in our midst. His throne room is, is that's why it says Jesus is at the door. He's right at the door of that dimension. At any time he could open that dimension up and we could see the Lord. When you die and that dimension opens up, you don't have to get on a spaceship and head into outer space and go beyond the, the first heaven and the second heaven to get to the third heaven. The third heaven is right there. And that dimension opened up for them and they could see, they could see the Lord. Uh, and then it first says in verse number, number 11, but on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. In other words, he had told them he was going to kill them. But now he gives them this vision. He doesn't lay his hand on them. And so they saw God, and I love this part, and they ate and drank, no doubt, with the Lord. Now what an experience that had to be. And then... Moses, at this point, they see the Lord. All these nobles get to see the Lord. Uh, the priests get to see the Lord. Mo Moses has already seen the Lord. And, and then at that point, Moses puts Aaron in charge. They go back down to the people, all of, all of them but Joshua and Moses. And then Joshua and Moses go up higher on that mountain, closer to the Lord. And then Moses leaves Joshua behind, and he disappears into a glory cloud, and he's there for 40 days and 40 nights in the very presence of God. And while he's there, the Lord has already given him the law at this point, but he writes the law with his very hand. And then he gives Moses the instruction for the tabernacle. He gives him the actual instructions for the tabernacle. And that tabernacle that, is, that he's going to give him the instructions for is a very shadow of heaven. It's a very shadow of the throne room of God. It's a very shadow of Jesus Christ himself. So it's, so it's important. How do I know that? Go with me over to the book of Hebrews, almost to the end of the Bible. Keep your place there in Exodus. You go with me to the book of Hebrews, to chapter number 8. And then and Moses says in verse number five, he says, these things serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things. I mean, verse number five of chapter eight of Hebrews. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was, a, when he was about to make, and that's what we're looking at now, about to make the tabernacle. He's, he's going to be given the instructions for the tabernacle. But it's a shadow of heavenly things. For he said, see that you make, the Lord said to him, see that you make uh, all things in the tabernacle according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. According to that exact pattern. It was to be a shadow of the throne room of God. It was to be a shadow of how we approach God. Uh, it was to be a shadow of Jesus Christ himself. And if you go back to chapter 25 in Exodus, 
you see the items that are used, the materials that are used to make this shadow, this tabernacle. And you would, because the tabernacle is so precious, the heavenly tabernacle is so precious, you would expect God to use very precious things in the making of the tabernacle, and he does. And they all have meaning here. But if you jump down to verse number 3 of 25, you see gold and silver and bronze. And chapter, in, in verse number 4, you see blue and purple and scarlet fine linen. Uh, in, chapter, in verse number 5, you see acacia wood. Uh, in verse number uh, 7, you see onyx stones, which are like diamonds. Uh, and and you got to, uh, I mean, you, you know where these came from. You remember how they received all these precious materials when, when they were leaving Egypt, in the Exodus, the people were so glad to get them out of there, they gave them all their wealth. And so they had all of these things, and later on they're going to take an offering, they're going to receive all these things, and they're going to get, get more than they can use from the people. But, but, it's, but, it's the, but, but all of this was made of very special things. Look at verse number 8. Jump down to verse number 8. And let them make a sanctuary, and watch this, that I may dwell among them. Let them make a tabernacle that I may dwell among them. Now, the Lord was already dwelling among them. Just like I said earlier, the Lord is dwelling among us. We don't see his tabernacle right now. We know that he tabernacles inside of us through the Holy Spirit. But his throne room's right there. He dwells among his people. And so he says, and let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now that's interesting because if you remember in several occasions in the Bible, we're told that the Lord does not dwell in temples made by hand. That's exactly what Stephen said in Acts chapter 7. He said the Lord does not dwell in temples made by hand, but he chose to rest his glory on the tabernacle in the midst of Israel. Now why did he do that? So they would have a visual sight or visual uh, picture of his very presence in their midst. He wanted them to have that. And so uh, the, the tabernacle is, is built and it's a holy place and it was set right in the center of the camp. I mean the holiest place of all was set right in their very midst. And, and it would make sense that when the Lord gives Moses the instructions for the tabernacle that he gives him the instructions for the most important part of the tabernacle, the part that represents Jesus Christ. Now, what would that part be? Anybody? What would the most important part of the tabernacle be? What's the part that represents Jesus Christ? The Ark of the Covenant. Where were y'all when we had that lesson earlier? I know you were awake, because if you were sleeping, I'd say something about it. So, so I don't remember saying anything about it. But, it, but, but if you look at verse number uh, 10, he's going to begin his tour or his instructions of the tabernacle with the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant, the most important article in the entire tabernacle because that article, as we'll see later on, is a picture of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to do this a little bit differently from the way God did it. Now, that's not necessarily a good thing. That, usually, that's a really bad thing. But what I want to do is take you on a tour of this tabernacle, but I want to take it on, the tour, on, on a tour in a way that you would see that tabernacle 
if you were camped out there in the wilderness with the Israelites. So I'm going to get Robert to put our little tour on the screen now. Let's just stop right there. That's the tabernacle right there. Now, if you remember the story of Balaam and Balak and how they stood up on the mountain and Balak said, curse Israel. When they looked down upon the camp of Israel, let me tell you what they saw. In the very center of the camp, they saw this tabernacle. And then the people had their tents all set up around the tabernacle. And it was set up around the tabernacle in the perfect form of a cross. If you were to have a snapshot of that, you would see the camp, people camp to the east and to the west and to the north and the south in the perfect form of cross around the very tabernacle, at the very center of their camp, because God was in their midst. And that was the most important thing in their lives at that point. God was in their midst. They really didn't have anything much else in their life. They had the manna, uh, they had some quail to eat and water from a rock, but hey, the rest of the time they were marching and they really didn't have that much to do. Hey, what a deal though. Wouldn't it be great to have nothing to do but to worship the Lord in his tabernacle? And so right in their very midst is the tabernacle. Now what do you notice about that tab tabernacle? You see the walls of the tabernacle and what are they made of? They're made of fine white linen, linen cloth. White linen cloth, what do you think maybe that stands for? The purity and holiness of God. In other words, when you approach this tabernacle, you were approaching a pure and a holy God. And then right above the words there, Tabernacle of Moses, you see the gates as you came in the gates. And, and we can look at the instructions for the gates. Stay there, uh, Robert. Uh, but come to, go to Exodus chapter 27. As, as I said, I'm going to take you through this thing, and we'll look at it in the Bible and, and uh, talk about what all of these things mean as we, as we go. In, in Exodus chapter 27, uh, verse number... 16, we see the gate of the tabernacle there. He says, for the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long. About, that's about 30 feet. Each one of those were about 10, each one of those sections was about 10 feet long and is about 7 feet high. He says, so there should be, uh, uh, and there's, on the other side, he says, for there's, for the gate of the court, here we go, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long woven in blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver. It shall have four pillows and four sockets made of silver. Now let's talk about that just a minute. What do you think maybe the blue stands for? The blue stands for heaven. The God of heaven is in your midst. The purple, what's purple always stand for in the Bible? Royalty. So it's all about the king of kings and lord of lords. And then you have the scarlet, the red. What do you think maybe the red stands for in the tabernacle? It stands for the blood of Jesus Christ. Even the silver has meaning. Silver in the Bible is, 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 is always being refined. And it, you come to the temple, you come, into, you come to the temple into the presence of God to be refined. And, and it also was the price of redemption, the 30 pieces of silver that you used to buy the, 
to redeem the firstborn. Uh, it was the price. It was the thirty pieces of silver that that Judas paid to, was paid to betray Jesus Christ. And so, so all of this has meaning. All right. Then you leave the outer gate and you come inside. If you look at that whole, that's the temple complex, or the tabernacle complex. When the temple was built later on, it was the same thing. It was just built with, with more permanent materials. But now move us on in uh, to the brazen altar. Robert? On the outside, whoa, whoa, you moved too far. Back it up. You don't know what the brazen altar is, do you? Back it up a little bit. Did we lose it? Come back a little bit, Robert. Right there, Robert. That's a, stay right there. The brazen altar. What's an altar? It's a place of sacrifice. The brazen altar was the place where the animals were sacrificed. Notice this location. Just like Jesus was crucified outside the camp, away from the temple, uh, the brazen altar stands outside the holy place. That, that box there at the back is the holy place. That's where the holiest of holies is. We'll be looking at that in a minute. But there's the brazen altar. And if you look at the brazen altar, uh, uh, let's see. Go with me to, to we're, we're there. Look at chapter 27, and let's look at the first few verses there and read that. Stay there, Robert, where you're at. It says in chapter 27, verse 1, You shall make an altar of acacia wood. The acacia wood was fine wood, very fine wood. But it is representative of the wood of the cross. You're to make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long, five cubits wide. and The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its, its horns, you'll have four horns on each corner, on the four corners, and it shall be one piece with it. And you shall overlay it, everything, the entire thing, in bronze. Also, you shall make its pans uh, to receive the ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and the fire pans. You shall make all the utensils of bronze. And so you've got the acacia wood, which represents uh, the cross. The priest would come there. He would make the sacrifices for the people. He would make the sacrifices himself before he could even go to the next step, which the next step you see is the labor. We'll get there in just a minute. But uh, all of that has meaning. Uh, bronze in the Bible, brass, what does it always stand for? It stands for judgment. Judgment. What did, what did Moses uh, tell the people, or what did God tell Moses to tell the people? That if you anger, if you provoke the Son of God, he will not, he will not, he will not pardon you. He will judge you. He will, he will punish you. And so that's the place of punishment. That's the place of uh, judgment. That's why you, it's made of brass. And then it has, if you look at it, it has four horns. What do the four horns represent? When you think of a horn, uh, what happens if you get pierced by a horn? You have pain and suffering. So the four horns represent the pain and suffering that Jesus Christ suffered for us on the cross. And, 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 and those horns, we'll see uh, here in a minute, were touched with blood. And that blood represents the blood of the animals. We know that from the Bible points to the, none other than the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed for us on the cross. So, so go a little bit further, uh, Robert. Uh-oh, you're too far. You, you're going to take these one article at a time. So, so uh, 
Don't jump ahead. There's nothing there we want to bypass, I promise you. Go ahead. A little bit further. Right there. All right. Now, the next thing that we see uh, in the tabernacle, we come to the labor uh, in the outer court. Now, what's a labor for? It's to wash, right? And, and, and it's a bronze labor, labor. So we have to wash because we've been judged. Look at, uh, go to uh, Exodus chapter 30 now. We're going to kind of be jumping around because we're taking this in, not in the order it's given to us in the text, but in the order in which we see it as you walk through the tabernacle. Uh, if you go to chapter number 30, uh, jump down to verse number 17. Chapter 30, verse number 17, and we get the instructions for the bronze labor. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a labor of bronze, with its base also of bronze, for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle and the meeting and the altar. All right, so you, you, you go, get the picture here. You go to the altar, that, and, and, and that takes care of the judgment of your sin. But that, you're not done then. You know, there's a lot of people in Christendom that think somehow I get saved and the, and the process is done and I'll see you in heaven. It's not like that. You're not done yet. You can't enter into the presence of God until you're cleaned up. I don't know about you, but I was a pretty dirty mess when I got saved. And there needed to be a lot of washing that takes place. And that was true of these, these priests. They were dirty too, and so in God's eyes, spiritually. And so we get a picture here of what's going on. He says, you, you shall make a labor of bronze with its base, also a bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting uh, and the altar, and you, shall, and you shall put water in it. For Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet and their water from it. Because the priests were the only ones that were going to go into the holy place. That's true today. Only God's kingdom of priests live in his very presence. If you're not a priest of God, you're not living in God's presence. If you're a born-again believer, you are a priest of God. We are a kingdom of priests. We're to be ministering to the people of this world. Not ministering to ourselves only. But minister, in fact, primarily, we're to be ministering to others. And so, for Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in the water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn uh, an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water uh, lest they die. God was pretty serious about that. So they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die. And it shall be a statue forever to them, uh, to him and his descendants and throughout all their generations. Now, whenever the Lord says, even when he was giving them principles that applied directly to them, whenever he said it will be a statue uh, throughout all generations, throughout their generations, what he's saying there is this, that the principle behind these instructions applies forever. Uh, what I'm telling you to do, everybody, this principle is going to apply from now on. Not just to Israel in the wilderness, but from now on it's going to have application. Now, here's the principle. And I, I said it already. Before we can go into the very presence of God, we have to be cleansed. 
We have to be cleansed. As believers, how are we cleansed? We're cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. We're washed in the blood. But that's not the only cleansing that takes place. You can't just get cleansed by the blood at the altar and be done. You have to be cleansed by the water of the Word and the water of the Spirit. We call that sanctification. And if you're not being sanctified, then you're not a child of God. And if you're not being sanctified, you're not going to enter the presence of God. Listen to what Paul says over in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. Uh, he says that Jesus desires to sanctify us and cleanse us through the work of the Spirit with the washing of the water of the Word that He might present us to Himself. Uh, now, most people think that's in heaven. That's not, that is in heaven, but it's now, that, that applies now. God wants to present us to Himself now. But the only way we can come into His presence is to be cleansed. Cleansed by the Word and cleansed by the Spirit, we have to be sanctified. Yes, Christ has died and paid for all our sins, but we have to be cleansed. We have to be made holy to enter the holy place. Very few believers ever really enter the holy place. They live in the outer court out here somewhere. They never really experience the presence of God because they don't give due to the Word of God. You neglect the Word of God, which washes you and sanctifies you and makes you holy through the Spirit of God. You neglect that process. And I'm going to tell you where you're going to live your life. You're going to live your life in the outer court if you're a believer. You're never going to make it into the holy place. And I think a lot of us, we, we kind of go back and forth, kind of like the priest did. We're in the holy place for a little bit, and we get out, and we, we live the, you know, most of our life in the outer court. God doesn't want us living there. He wants us living in his very presence, in a close relationship to him. If you abide in his word, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. What's that mean? If you don't abide in his word, you're not his disciples. And, 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 and the reason he wants us to abide in his word, because his word supernaturally cleanses us. It sanctifies us. Now you say, how? Well, how, I, I can't tell you how that works anymore. I can tell you how you can take a little seed and make a giant watermelon out of it. I can't tell you how that works. Nobody can tell you how that works. People talk about we get a vaccine, it's going to cure the, the COVID virus. We don't know how that works. All we know is that it makes our body work. But, and how our body, if we knew how our body did that, that's what we would do instead of doing a vaccine. We don't know how those things work. I can't tell you how it works. I'll tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says if you, if you abide in my word, Jesus said it. If you abide in my word, you're my disciples. If you don't abide in my word, you're not my disciples. And it's when we abide in the word that we're sanctified and we're cleansed to a point where we can come into the very presence of God, into the holy place. That's what God's showing us here in this tabernacle. How many of you want to live in the holy place? Raise your hand on that one, yeah. Yeah, you want to live there. How do you live there? You get into the word of God. Not legalistically. You, you, you ponder this word, you study this word, so you can live by this word. 
And when you live by this word and you're sanctified by the spirit and you put into death the deeds of the flesh, you're not going to live a miserable life in the outer court. You're going to live in the very holy presence of God. All right. Now we come to the next article. Uh, and Stop right there. Notice there's a curtain. The curtain looks exactly like the gate, doesn't it? What's the curtain made of? Let me, let's, let's see if I've got a text for it. Uh, shoot, I thought I did. Well, we can just look at it. I'll find the text later. The, what's, the, what's it made of? It's made of that same linen cloth, the purple, the scarlet, and the blue. The blue representing heaven, the purple representing the royalty. I mean, you're entering royalty. You're entering the place of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And you're entering, it's red because you're entering by his blood. That was a constant reminder. I don't even know if they knew it. But, it, but God wasn't letting them in there for any other reason. But the fact that they had been sprinkled with the blood. And in his eyes they had been washed with the blood. And they were able to enter into his presence. All right, now, the next item. Once you come in to the holy place. Now, that, that box there, uh, which is about 15 feet high uh, and about uh, 30 feet wide. It's not that big. The holy, the, holy, the holy place was not that big. The temple complex was not that big. Now, the, the temple complex in Jerusalem, they had the court of the Gentiles and all sorts of other things there. And, and Herod was trying to build something, build something really magnificent. And so it was maybe bigger than, the, than these instructions called for. But the first temple and the tabernacle looked basically about this size. And so you come in now, Robert, you want to take us there? And stop when you see the golden lamp stand. It's a menorah, Robert. Keep going. You'll go. It'll take you in. There's the outer gate. We've got the brazen altar. There's the lambs for the sacrifice. I, I, I thought the picture that was on there, you have the horns of the altar. There's the lambs for the sacrifice. You know what that's a picture of. The utensils we talked about. We'll see coals from the altar brought to the altar of incense here in just a little bit. The wash of the labor, the altar sprinkled with the blood which represents the blood of Jesus Christ. So you're in the outer courtyard, and now you, run, you come to the labor where you're washed. At the labor, it's bronze because we've been judged. It speaks of judgment. And you're cleansed and sanctified, and now you enter heaven basically when you see that blue by the blood of Christ and the king of kings is inside and you stop there and the first article you see there on the left on your left is the Manoah the the golden lampstand the instructions for the golden lampstand are found over in chapter 25 if you flip with me there and pick up in verse number 31. 
says, you shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. Gold. Gold represents divinity in the Bible, not the candy divinity. I know it's Christmas time, and some of you have your mind on that. It's the divinity of God. Uh, you, shall, you shall also make a lampstand of pure gold, and a lampstand shall be, a, of, be of hammered work. Uh, its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornament, or, ornamental knobs, and its flowers. The flowers were almond blossoms representing the continuous flow of the oil into the lamp. Uh, shall be one piece. Then jump down to verse number 37. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it. And its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all of the, these utensils. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. Whenever we see the number in seven in scripture, we know that means perfection, the perfection of God. The gold represents the divinity of God. And so this lampstand represents the perfect divinity of God expressed in light. Express, expressed in light. Remember what... Uh, Jesus said about himself in John chapter 9, verse 5, he says, I am the light of the world. In 1 John, John says of Jesus, he said, he is light and in him is no darkness at all. He is perfect and pure light. And when you come into the presence of God, this light just was candlelight. But when you're, it's symbolic of when you come into the presence of God and you come into the Shekinah glory of Jesus Christ. If you're walking with the Lord, you are walking in the light as he is in the light and in you is no darkness at all and you have fellowship with one another. That's the way we're to walk. You can't walk that way in the outer court. You have to be in the inner court. And, and, and uh, uh, if, if you make it to the inner court, then, then hey, you're walking in his light. If you have a sense in your soul that you're living in darkness, there's something wrong. You shouldn't feel that way because you're not living in darkness. If you're a born-again Christian who's in the Word, who's washed in the Word, who's come into the presence of God, you should be walking in His light and you should have a sense of his light. And his light is truth, it's goodness, it's joy, it's peace, it's strength, it's patience, it's self-control, it's all of those things. That's what encompasses his light. And, and, and we are living in such dark times. And they're going to only get darker. That it's going to be real easy for you if you're living out there in the outer court. Don't go back there, Robert. If you're living out there in the outer court to feel this sense of darkness all the time and be depressed, depressed to the point you almost want to kill yourself. We're living in rough times. But get inside. Spend your time in the Word. Get close to the Lord. Get into His light. And you will find joy and peace in the very light of God. All right, then the next item that we have, you'll see. You, Robert, you can go 
I don't know if you can go any further or not to where you focus that in a little bit better. Uh, right there, stay there. We don't want to lose it. Right there to your right, on the right, what do you see? You see the table of showbread. The instructions for the table of showbread are in Exodus chapter 25. And, and I'm going to have to rush through these now because I, I said I was going to get you guys out early today. and I'm running here again uh, late. Uh, you shall also make a table of acacia wood. We already talked what the acacia wood represents, the cross. Two cubits shall be its length and cubit, a, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make, it, make a molding of gold all around it. Now let me tell you about this. Over in Leviticus chapter number uh, 24, we're told that there was to be 12 loaves uh, placed on the table of showbread. We see those loaves, those round loaves there on the table of showbread. What do you think those loaves represent? Each loaf represents a tribe of Israel. Now what is all of that saying? The showbread, to show the bread. That meant that the Israelites live constantly in the presence of God. They were in the sight of God. God never took his eye off of Israel. Now, some people say this has something to do with the bread of life. I don't think so. The bread in the ark does. This has something to do, if you remember, when Jesus was at the well with the Samaritan woman, and he had talked to her, and she had left, and uh, uh, the, the disciples came back, and they asked him if he was hungry. And you remember what he said? He said, this is my food, that I do the will of God, that I minister to these people here in Samaria. That's my food. You understand what God's food is? You understand what pleases him and satisfies him? The nation of Israel, those 12 tribes, they're ever before him. But somewhere up in heaven, there's a loaf that represents you too. And you're ever before him. If you're a child of God, you're ever in his sight. You're always in his presence. I mean, you don't sense his presence if you're out in the outer court, but he knows you're there because you're ever before him, just as that showbread was always before them. And every Sabbath, they would replace the showbread with new showbread. All right, I'm going to leave that one now and then go to the next item. And you can just stay there. You can see it there, dead center. That's called uh, the altar of incense. And the altar of incense, uh, uh, the text for that is over uh, in Exodus 30. Go with me to Exodus 30. You, you, you're breaking records here today. We're covering about six chapters, so, so be proud of yourself. And we're going we're gonna to finish here at noon. It says, you shall make an altar to, to burn incense on, you shall make it of acacia wood, again, representing that cross. Think about that. The altar of incense we're going to see represents prayers. Prayers come through the cross of Jesus Christ. No man comes through the Father except through Jesus Christ and his blood. A cubit shall be the length and a cubit its width. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay its top and all, its sides all around, and its horns with pure gold, representing the divinity of God, 
representing being in the presence of God. And you shall make it for a molding of gold all around. Then in verse number 6, he says, And you shall put it before the veil. And you see the veil that opens into the holiest of holies. That veil looks just like the other veils. It's blue, purple, and scarlet. We won't have to go through that again. You shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony where I will meet you. Aaron will burn on it a sweet incense every morning when he tends the lamps. He shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord, again, throughout all the generations. This is a, an eternal precept right here. Uh, the application goes on and on and on and on, and it never ends. What's incense always represent in the Bible? I don't have to tell you this. It represents prayers. David said in Psalm 141, verse 2, May my prayer be before you like incense. Remember when Zechariah, the, the priest, was in, the, the, the father of John the Baptist was in the temple and he was, he was at the altar of incense and he was offering, putting the coals on the altar of the incense. What were the people outside doing? Simultaneously, they were praying when he saw the angel Gabriel. Uh, in Revelation chapter number 5, uh, John saw the elders around the throne holding golden bowls. I'm, I'm quoting now, hold, uh, holding golden bowls full of uh, incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And then you own that altar. Notice also you have the horns. Because your prayers don't go up to the Lord without the pain and suffering of Jesus Christ that he suffered on the cross. And the location tells me something. The location tells me something. I've got to be washed before I can even get there. I'm in the presence of God. I'm walking in his light. And I come to the Lord with my prayers, and where, where is it at? It's right at the entrance to the holiest of holies. When I get to that place, I'm where I want to be. I'm almost in the very presence of God. And the blood on those horns, and those horns, which the blood which represents Jesus Christ, and those horns which represent his pain and suffering, allow me to get into the presence of God. I hear all of these people and these politicians praying and they don't pray in the name of Jesus Christ. They're wasting their time because only by his blood and only by his pain and suffering are we worthy to enter the holiest of holies with our prayers. Only by that. And notice the prayers, the, the incense was unceasing. It never stopped. Paul says about our prayers, to be, we're to pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean that we live on our knees our whole life, but we live in an attitude of prayer. If you don't live in an attitude of prayer, I'm going to tell you where you're living. You're living in the outer court. And if you're a miserable Christian, that's why you're a miserable Christian. As long as you're in the outer court, it's like being in the wilderness, and you're going to be miserable. Only when you come to Christ, uh, Come to the Lord through the blood of Christ and through the cross and through the cleansing that you receive to get into the holy place. Do, do, do you have prayers that really impact your life and impact this world? So then you have the veil, and I'm not going to go over that because we've looked at that before. And then once inside the holiest of holies, I mean once inside the, the, the curtain, go ahead, take us in, Robert. 
That's the menorah. You get a better view of it there. There's the table of showbread with the 12 loaves. There's the altar of incense where the smoke from the incense went up continually into the Lord, just like our prayers go up continually to the Lord and allow us to go into the holiest. I'm sorry, I can't skip the veil. We got to talk about the veil a minute. That's probably the most important, one of the most important things because that veil into the holiest of holies, not only do those horns represent the uh, suffering of Jesus Christ and the pain and suffering, that veil means a lot too. Because if you remember when Jesus gave up the Spirit on the cross, it wasn't an accident that that veil was ripped from top, not from bottom to top, because you could say people did. It was ripped from top to bottom. And why was it ripped from top to bottom? So that access had been given to us through that cross into the very holiest of holies of God. Now we let's take us into the holiest of holies. And what do we see there? Is that the best shot we can get of it, Robert? It's not very clear. Leave it there. Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant. And what do we see? We see the Ark of the Covenant. Um, uh, go with me to Exodus 25, and let's read where we. Oh, yeah, you got it good. Now if I can read, we can see if I can read with that. I think I can. I'm good. You shall make an altar of acacia wood five cubits long. I'm chapter 27, verse 1, and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be one piece of it. Guys, y'all let me do that. That's terrible. The Ark of the Covenant is in chapter 25. I'm sorry. I'm trying to rush through this and I'm losing my train of thought. Chapter 25, the Ark of the Covenant. We've already looked at the Ark of the Covenant because those instructions were given earlier too, but let me just read a couple of verses here and we'll be done. He says, And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be the length. I'm in chapter 25. 5 verse 10 and you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out you shall overlay it and you shall make on it a molding of gold all around then in verse number 16 jump down to that and you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat and so you have the Ark of the Covenant is made of gold. We talk about the reason for gold is the divinity. You have the cherubim there and the mercy seat. Once a year, the priest went into the holiest of holies. We went through all those processes. He went into the holiest of holies and the holiest of holies. On the mercy seat, he sprinkled the blood. And that blood, again, represents Jesus Christ. And those angels represent the angels looking over Jesus Christ saying, Who is worthy uh, to take the scroll? The lamb is worthy to take the scroll. The one who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And there you have there's cherubim over, over the, the holiest of holies. 
Now, inside that ark were three things, and we discussed this in detail, so I won't go in detail with that now, but, but there's three things. You had the pot of manna, uh, you had Aaron's rod that always bloomed, and you had, uh, you had the stone tablets with which, which God wrote the law on those tablets with his very hand. So, so inside the ark, you have a picture of Jesus Christ. You have a picture of Jesus Christ who is the bread of life. He's our manna. We, have, we discussed that in detail. I'm not going to go through that again. We discussed that when we were in the section on manna. Uh, he is our life. He is everlasting life. That rod of Aaron's never died. As long as it was in that ark, it, it was supernaturally kept alive. And, and supernaturally, God gives us his everlasting life. And then you have the law, the, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments on stone, which represent the very character and justice of God. And so you, in that ark, you get a beautiful picture of none other than Jesus Christ. Now, I, I tell you, I, I had something to say, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it there and finish up just real quickly reviewing this process. What happens? We want to come to God's tabernacle. God tabernacles in us. That tabernacle spiritually is in us. But most of it don't, most of it, just like those Israelites at the edge of the camp, a lot of them never even went near the place. They didn't even know it was there. God tabernacles in you and he wants you aware of his presence. And he wants you to come in to his courts. Well, when you come in, Whenever you come in to the presence of God, whenever you ponder God and you think upon God and you, you want to talk to God, the first thing that you've got to do, you've got to come to that altar. You've got to come to that altar and you have to have something done with your sins. And, 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 and the blood on the altar represents the blood of Christ. And then we're washed. We go and we're, we go to the, to the, to the table of, uh, I mean, to the labor and we wash ourselves and we cleanse ourselves in the word and the spirit and we go inside and we start living in the holiest of holies. He's living in us already. But when we take those steps and we're washed and we're cleansed and we allow him to sanctify us, then we're living our lives in the holiest place. And when we're living in the holiest place, hey, he has us in his eyes. He has us in the palm of his hands and we don't have anything to fear. And we walk in his light as he is in the light. And then we pray. And we're, we pray powerful prayers. Prayers that get answered because we're living in a cognizant relationship with Jesus Christ. And when we do that, not only are our prayers answered, we come into the very presence of God. When was the last time you realized that you were in the very presence of God. When you could just sense that presence of God. And, you, and when you're in the presence of God, you partake of his bread, you partake of his life, and you partake of his law. And you're the kind of person that God wants to present holy and blameless at his coming. That's the process. I mean, we've had to rush through this. That really, that really, this should have taken, you know, 
If I was doing this in a normal way, we would have spent weeks and weeks and weeks going through this tabernacle. But, but we're trying to do an overview. But, but go back and you can find that video on YouTube and it's a lot clearer and a lot better. It's three and a half minutes. Look at that video and look at that video and think about it and ponder where you're at in your life right now in your relationship with the Lord. Let me tell you where you want to be. You want to be in the holiest of holies, living in a close relationship with Jesus Christ, in his light, not in this, the darkness of this world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the picture that you've given us here. Lord, I've rushed through it and, and haven't done justice to, to, to all the things that, that we could see uh, in this text, Lord. Uh, I just, I'm just so grateful for what you've done through Christ. Lord, I'm so grateful that, that you offer us a, a, a relationship with you beyond anything we can possibly imagine. If we would just recognize your presence, your tabernacle in our souls. Lord, if we would live our lives as if we're living in your presence. Lord, if we would come to you and clean, have ourselves cleansed by your word and by your spirit. Lord, and if we, and if we took the time to, to, to offer up unceasing prayers, Lord, into your throne room. What a wonderful life, Lord, you have available for us, even in this dark and dreary world in which we live, in this terrible time in which we live. Lord, there's joy and there's hope and there's peace and there's comfort and goodness and kindness and all of those things, Lord, in Christ. And so we just ask that you draw us near, Lord. Uh, we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.